to our podcast from the Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation touching on news, current affairs, culture and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, a former BBC correspondent, and my co-presenter is Tara O'Connor, who heads up Africa Risk Consulting. We both live, breathe and work African affairs, and our podcast seeks to shed light on a continent which continues to fascinate and draw us in. Tara, welcome. Hi, Karen. Here we are again. Nice to talk to you. You're in a fancy studio in London, I understand. Very fancy studio. Absolutely taking things to a new level. And I think it's Old Street Studios is where we're, just to give them a bit of a name check. Nice to talk to you. Uh, I've got Ludwig, our sound engineer, looking after us here. So greetings from Ludwig as well. I'm in South Africa where the country's internal political infighting and external positioning on big geopolitical issues like the Russian war in Ukraine and international justice continue to perplex. There'll be more on that in a bit. We've also got a great podcast guest a little bit later on who'll be talking about Africa's digital development and the geopolitics of tech. Now, Nanjira Sambuli is a Kenyan writer and researcher for the Carnegie Endowment, who argues strongly that the big tech companies, which are largely based in the US, ignore Africa at their peril. Here's a sneak preview. Everybody can tech is my thing. Anybody can tech so long as you're affected by it, as long as you have a view of what's happening, the impact in your society and your community, anybody can tech. The tech policy conversation is not just for the techies. More on that later. But first, Tara, let's take a look at some of the stories that have been in the news since our last podcast. While Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni has scoffed at foreign governments that have criticised his decision to sign an anti-homosexuality bill into law, the legislation criminalises same-sex acts and people found guilty can get the death penalty or a 20-year jail term for the promotion of homosexuality. Meanwhile, the major suspect in the Rwandan genocide of 1994 has now been arrested in South Africa. Now, the accused, Fulgens Kaishima, had ordered the killing of nearly about 2,000 Tutsi minorities in Rwanda. The former Botswana president, Ian Hama, has been living in a self-imposed exile here in South Africa and says he fears for his safety should he go back home. His rift with his hand-picked successor, Mukwezi Masisi, continues. Hama now faces a raft of charges, including the unlawful possession of firearms and owning unregistered weapons. He's approached the Johannesburg High Court seeking a declaratory order to reject any extradition request should one be made. Okay, Karen, so picking up on a few other stories, um, I think the most important one is that um, Bola Tinubu has finally been inaugurated as the new president of Nigeria. It comes not a moment too soon. You know, the country is in desperate need of leadership and direction um, after two terms of the outgoing president, Mm -hmm. uh, Muhammadu Buhari. And Buhari leaves behind him a legacy of, a terrible legacy, actually, of really increased poverty um, that was exacerbated by COVID, lawlessness, a really poorly performing economy, and oil production, which is the main export from the country, is falling. Major oil companies are quitting, leaving a trail of environmental damage behind them, and Currency controls are putting restraints on foreign and local business investments. So it's really not a pretty picture. Not at all. But 
Of course, Bahari leaving power by the ballot box is significant for another reason, isn't it, Tara? He's the last of a generation of military political leaders that dominated the 1970s, 80s and 90s. So Nigeria's future leaders will be all civilian. Yes, and if we're looking at the upside, it is yet another successful political transition. Mm. You know, there has been challenged in the courts and there is evidence of uh, of political manipulation. It wasn't a clean or a free and fair election, but the transition is yet another one by the ballot box and that widens the psychological distance from military rule. Mm. And we also care about Nigeria because it is... It, the Africa's largest economy, its most populous nation, and even small changes in policy, ch- small changes in leadership can have a massive impact and have a massive impact for the 200 million or so people that inhabit the country. Yeah. So all eyes have been on what Tinubu is going to do first to try and address some of that appalling legacy. You've talked about oil big story with Dangote and the oil refinery. Absolutely. I mean, an incredible story. Tanubu's first action in, in office was to scrap the notorious fuel subsidies in days um, after um, Aliko Dangote opened his mega project of an oil refinery that will not just supply... Um, once it's fully functional, will not just supply all of Nigeria's needs, but it will probably export uh, to the region, process and export some of the region's um, production. Yeah. And it's significant, not necessarily because it could push the price of petroleum products down, because I understand that's unlikely to happen in the short term. But as you say, there is spare capacity, and that means the oil refinery could be a significant foreign exchange earner for Nigeria. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Dangote has said that the refinery will process oil on behalf of Nigeria and its neighbours. And there were it's notable that there were five regional heads of state at the opening of the yeah. refinery. Um, and so it will be a major export earner. But I think the most important thing is that it has the potential to free up something like $7 billion of dollars a year um, that was paid out in fuel subsidies and fuel imports very ironic for one of uh, the world's of Africa's largest oil producer um, was paying out fuel import subsidies. But Tinubu has also promised that that seven billion will be spent on infrastructure. Mm. Well, Tara, thanks for that. A couple of stories in South Africa which grabbed my attention, um, both linked to international criminal justice, actually. You remember we talked in the last podcast about South Africa's muddled and at times rather hostile position towards the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and international justice more broadly. Well, it's come to the fore yet again because South Africa's meant to be hosting the BRICS summit in August. Now, that would put it under pressure to arrest Vladimir Putin of Russia, who is wanted by the International Criminal Court on war crimes charges against Ukraine. Now, South Africa has been feeling very awkward about this. It's trying to get around the issue by possibly requesting that China host the summit instead. And it's doing that because it knows that in 2017, the Supreme Court here ruled that South Africa was under an obligation to arrest anyone indicted by the ICC, even if they are a sitting head of state. 
But Tara, there's an irony here, because at the same time as this Russia story is playing out, it seems very happy to perform its duty and arrest a prominent Rwandan genocide suspect, Fulgence Kayashema, in the Western Cape of South Africa. Now, that's happened in the past few days. He's appeared in court and he's currently in South African custody. Mr Kayashema is wanted by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda on war crimes charges and of genocide and being complicit in genocide and the deaths of some 2,000 people hiding in a church during the Rwandan Civil War in 1994. So South Africa is going full speed ahead on that case in rather sharp contrast to the ICC and Putin's arrest warrant. Yes, I mean, it just seems to be leaping through hoops to try and protect BRICS rather than actually even focus on its economy because yeah. it uh, in following up on that course of events will put South Africa really in conflict with its two major trading partners, the US and uh, and the EU. Yes. I think trade with the EU accounts for, I think, something like 12% of GDP, whereas trade with Russia is 0.02% of GDP or something, something minuscule by comparison. Yeah. And even the impact on the rand. I mean, people, you know, I don't often follow the currencies, but I have to say I'm paying a lot more attention now because it is... Being, it's really been taking a tumble since this whole affair kind of raised its head. Yes. You're listening to The Ark Insider with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Now, the focus of this podcast is Africa and tech. We've showcased in the past some incredible success stories of African digital innovation, which is changing the way we live from food and medicines distribution through to the way our newspapers are delivered via WhatsApp. Many have described data as the new oil, and the African continent is fertile ground for the development of both vast opportunities, but also threats. Think of mobile money, digital climate forecasting and telemedicine. It is incredible. But you've also got to think about cybercrime, surveillance, human trafficking and disinformation. So what role should Africa play in ensuring it gets the very best out of the new digital landscape? And how should it work with the tech giants, many of them located in the United States, to make sure that the digital landscape is a safe place? To discuss this, we're joined by Nanjira Sambuli, who's a fellow in the Technology and International Affairs Programme at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Nanjira, welcome. Thanks for having me. You're speaking to us from Nairobi. Um, I'm in South Africa and Tara O'Connor's in London. Yes, and welcome to the Ark Insider, Nanjira. Thanks, Tara. Really good to have you here. Now, as I say, you're speaking to us from Kenya, a place that positions itself as the silicon savannah of East Africa and where many great innovations have come from in the digital sphere. We all seem to take the march of digital technology pretty much in our stride, whether it's making money transfers and everyone talks about in PESA in Kenya about that, or for things like booking an Uber. But like it or not, our digital transformation is bound up in geopolitics. Now, for many of our listeners, that may not automatically be apparent, Nanjira. Why is there a geopolitical element to this new digital landscape? I think the summary to that is that, first of all, technologies are not developed in a vacuum. Um, they're not apolitical. 
Therefore, those who design the politics around the ecosystems or uh, geographies they're based ineluctably impact how technologies are not only developed, but how they diffuse across communities. Mm -hmm. So in the geopolitical realm, we have this concept of great power competition, notably between the United States and China, both of which are formidable players, not just in uh, technology, but in broader, you know, uh, global economic dimensions. And technology is becoming an interesting flashpoint around which their great power competition is emerging. And does it always have to be that way? I mean, you know, you're speaking to us from Kenya, where there have been some incredible technological developments on the continent that have emanated from mm-hmm. Kenya. You know, when we you talk about the design features of tech being largely influenced by China and the US, um, is Africa able to shape that at all? Well, Africa can shape that. And I think the question is whether it does that as a continent through instruments like the African Union or individual countries go about it or a group of countries, a club formation happens here. However, the question is how does whatever competition is emerging lead to the best deal for the continent? Mm. And just to jump in there, you know, you often get the impression that um, that that the African continent is portrayed as naive mm-hmm. when it comes to the politics of digitization. I, I object to that impression, um, largely because obviously sort of something like 30% of, of Kenya's GDP now goes through uh, through a digital, um, uh, through M-Pesa effectively. But we have also seen in recent days, you know, countries like Zambia, which have shown great leadership, such as um, under HH, you know, the new president. And he recently cancelled two major Chinese contracts that were very considered excessively expensive. Huawei was about to be replaced by US Starlink. Mm-hmm. So when African leaders step up to actually solving an issue at home, they are becoming victims too. I don't know if you see that. Well, and, you know, one interesting frame that we need to bring in, especially when China is considered, is that we need to look not just as the, at the supplier, whether it's China as a government or Chinese companies, but the demand, the client, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not like, you know, Chinese actors have come and sort of forced us into these kinds of deals we've signed, whether it's on hard, you know, hard infrastructure, analog infrastructure, or anything else for that matter. The agency with which our governments go to sign these deals must be coming up for discussion a lot more because all too often we have this assumption, this veil when we speak about China that is very convenient to make them the bogeyman. But there is an agency where Zambia, through the uh, through the previous regime, went to sign that kind of deal. Maybe there are different interests and often we call them the stomach politics. <laughs> yeah. um, because using yeah. Huawei in the same um, you know vein uh, to compare to M-Pesa, as you, as you mentioned earlier, Karen, is that Huawei on, in, in Kenya and with M-Pesa have built a, a bespoke mobile money platform to entirely support M-Pesa's growth to the continent. Yeah. They have worked with Safaricom as a client, met them at their needs level, and built for them the infrastructure that will take them to the next level, which is open, which is secure, which is flexible per their, uh, per their framing. Um, so it really just, just goes to show whatever you ask for, whatever you demand, whatever you pay for is what you're going to get. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, when you, there is, there are often, 
you know, ripples of terror when you mention sort of China and tech in, in certain circles. And, I, you know, I sometimes speak to U.S. diplomats and, you know, they, they say, you know, what can we do to get Africa more interested in U.S. products rather than Chinese products? Uh, I don't have any influence in this, obviously. But, um, you know, one of the things that is so illogical to me is that actually even though there may be concerns among the people who um, commission those products about things like Chinese surveillance technology or surveillance norms and things, things like that, that ultimately they're cheaper. And if you're a politician or you're um, trying to make sure that your citizens is able to access the same kind of technology as you would get in, in Washington or London or Berlin, you know, price matters. And the Chinese have managed to make technology which is affordable to many people in this part of the world. Yes, they've simply been responsive to the demand and to the realities of the ecosystem. I think it was actually even President um, Hakainde himself mm. when hosting um, the Summit for Democracy did an op-ed for Bloomberg, I believe, where he basically pointed out something very that indicts the U.S. approach to Africa, which was basically, he said, you cannot eat democracy, which really was a call for yeah. the fact that beyond pushing for these norms, beyond pushing for these soft, intangible elements. We need the tangible, visible elements that not only support the political interests of the elite, but actually improve the lives of people. Now, it's not perfect how China goes about it, but when China is asked to come build a road, they will build a road. Mm. Now, if the road happens to be in the president's backyard and not anywhere else, they create a, a convenient barrier not to be involved in that because that's where local politics, local uh, regimes should come in, right? And, and those who represent them politically. Yeah, no, it's a, a good point. The real issue is still, you know, about only about a third of uh, people in Africa have access to the internet, for example. While practically everybody has a mobile phone and the next level is going to be smartphones, it still really is an issue of um, of of the customer. I mean, if you think about sort of the digital age and that's from Facebook and Google and Meta, they are looking for eyeballs um, for advertising. Mm. Mm -hmm. And really that kind of disposable income is not really, really there yet in Africa. And that then means that those big companies don't really care. Isn't that a problem? It's a, it's a myopic uh, view, in my opinion. Just mm. because it's not a ready market in the way they've been used to having markets in the North does not mean it's not going to be a viable market tomorrow just because of pure growth potential. You've written recently a piece on why the big tech companies effectively need Africa and why they ignore Africa at their peril. Um, we've focused just in the past few minutes on, on the market side and the revenue side of that. But there's also a sort of a, a philosophical side as well, isn't there? I mean, the big tech companies increasingly are being called to account when it comes to um, how the technology is used. And, you know, we've been on panels together in Nigeria, we've talked about things like disinformation. What would you like the big tech companies to do more of if they mm -hmm. were to increase their footprint in Africa? I'd even start with what they need to stop doing, mm -hmm. which is something they're already doing by ignoring us, which is ignoring the canary in the coal mine. The disinformation, misinformation, industrial complex, if we may call it that. I worked on misinformation and, uh, you know, hate speech online mm -hmm. a decade ago, what we were seeing in Kenya, in Nigeria, in Myanmar. And it's only a decade later that these issues are being acknowledged as having uh, been the canary in the coal mine and should have helped these companies be better prepared for the reality that was coming because 
because technologies do not exist in a vacuum. But now we have to wait till this happens in the West for us to be considered. And even then we're still being tucked in as an afterthought. So before even adding more, I would say we need to have them stop and realize these are markets where even as much as you're not getting your billion people, you do have insights that can help you future proof the kind of viability, the kind of resilience you need to serve communities once technology is diffused. Does it mean having more Google offices, more Facebook offices, you know, more TikTok offices in African cities? Uh, as, and, and obviously there's been a resistance to do that because you then have to submit to domestic laws. Is it, as, is it as simple as that? So you understand the context that when you see stuff happening online and you've got your moderators, is it practical steps like that? Just be present and understand the market in which you're working and understand it from a human point of view, not just purely from a revenue point of view. I would say it's less about the brick and mortar presence as it is about the resource presence. That means that in as much as there are already several offices for some of these uh, big tech companies in some of our capitals, it has not directly translated to our issues being escalated. So it's not just Mm -hmm. about the brick and mortar. I think there have been statistics that have shown for content moderation budgets, 80 to 90 percent are focused on the global north. Uh, while the global majority, as the new terminology is going, uh, has to take on the rest. Now, that's where you have all the diversities of languages, of political economies, and so on. So whether you put in more offices across every capital in the global south versus what that actually represents insofar as access and reform and actually serving clientele are two very different things. So Mm -hmm. I would be hesitant to say it's just about taking up the measure of, you know, a CEO visited Lagos and Johannesburg in Nairobi uh, Mm -hmm. or, you know, set up an office there. Now, to the question of actual brick and mortar presence, there is the element of the fact that the the big lingering question is how answerable are these companies to our jurisdictions? And if they're saying that it's too expensive or impractical to set up across every jurisdiction, what kinds of conversations can still be happening such that they are able to be answerable to the laws of our land. Is this where we start pushing for the African Union to consolidate uh, you know, representation for the continent on certain issues, for example? Mm. Karen, can I step in mm, just with please. this one thing? Because you raised something very, very interestingly um, there, which is, in fact, you know, I mean, be interesting to know for... Um, exactly what the African Union is doing. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, looking at the ownership of one's data. You know, I mean, and one of the things that Karen and I were talking about in preparation for this is where, you know, we have this incredible demographic across the continent where the average age is 19. You know, the data that goes with that. um, Who owns that? And, Mm -hmm. And should we not, should not the African Union be... Um, driving a much more um, ownership, ownership of data um, and protection of data. I'd be interested to know what's actually happening now. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, the role of the African Union in the digital age is really runs in parallel to what the African Union has been able to do politically. Now, on the digital realm, we've seen an African Union level digital transformation strategy. Um, how representative or how bottom-up it is, is up for debate. But more interestingly is about nine years ago when the African Union came together and tried to propose a convention on cybersecurity and personal data protection, also known as the Malibu Convention. Mm. This country needed a minimum number of countries to ratify it so that it becomes a law across all member states. It has been nine years too late, and I think it's only last week that it finally received, I think, the 14th or 15th signature that it needs to uh, Mm. become a convention 
population across the land. In the meantime, different countries, I think up to 25 or so, have gone about setting up their own data protection regimes uh, and concomitantly the cybersecurity ones, whether they're combined, whether they're separate, being another matter. Now, the big question remains now, will it require that all these countries align to this sort of uh, African Union level Convention that's also nine years outdated now. <laughs> uh, and even then, yeah. right, mm. what instruments, mm. and this becomes a bigger political question that really just hammers the point home that technology is not neutral, that are African countries willing to cede any kind of power, political power to this instrument? You know, kind of like what we've seen with the European Union, in as much as doesn't necessarily speak for all the countries, there has mm. been some, you know, ceding of uh, terrain or domain for the EU to, to 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 put together some laws of the land for the region, right? Mm. As a starting point, we do not yet have that. And just to and just to root that in a sort of practical example, I mean, you mentioned cybercrime, but you know what what the Malibu Convention does is is sort of impose a sort of a set of guiding principles, if you like, that if, for example, South Africa uh, gets attacked, a cyber attack, and it also impinges upon several other jurisdictions, they uh, are obliged to share information and to cooperate. So that's the very kind of practical application of it. And and that's why it matters, because sometimes these things can seem so abstract and so esoteric. But that is why it matters, because ultimately these kind of crimes are borderless crimes, so you don't have the normal jurisdiction that we would have if it was a a real-world crime perpetrated within a state with borders, etc. Exactly. And the challenge here really is also, it's almost even generational too, in how our policymakers and those who are affected by these policies, right? Even younger generations of Africans do want, do aspire to that borderlessness of our own mm. land. But all too often, we're still seeing policies, whether it's in the analog or digital realm, that are trying to reinforce these artificial yes, borders. So we already a have point. a mindset barrier mm-hmm. on our end around how we start to create for a present and a future where Africa actually can benefit from um, its own economies of scale, so to speak. But there's been this big debate about sort of where our data gets stored. And, you know, we've got companies like Amazon Web Services that are developing in South Africa, these big you know, data storage um, receptacles, and don't know what to call them. You know, that has to be a, a presumably a win for this part of the world, that the big companies are coming here and the data is being stored more locally. I think you call this localization. Well, the way data localization has been necessitated in different jurisdictions is that the companies can set up clouds or data centers there, but retain citizens' data in those countries jurisdictionally and not transfer them in what is called the cross-border data flows. So a country like India is a bit more bullish about that and has really enforced that in how um, you know data, data ownership or data protection is conducted. Um, here, we've seen a few countries try that. I think I'd use an example that I know well, which is Kenya, which requires mm. data localization of civil uh, data. So anything to do with birth, death, you know, um, sort of like very foundational information about individuals, it yeah. is required by law that that is stored locally. However, there are all these other data sets that we generate in a daily basis that do form such, inf- you know, intimate proxies for that. And that re- remains a salient issue because there's many actors who argue that, you know, moving data around um, is what helps, you know, the lifeblood of the economy of digital ecosystems and so on. And those remain present debates that we need to engage on because the question is whether you want to hoard data for the sake of hoarding it through local laws, or is that that you feel that there's a disadvantage or an advantage to be gained by having that requirement that serves specific needs. And here I'd specify, you know, where indigenous communities or 
you know, um, minoritized communities are, how they be ensure that however their data is collected, whether it's through, you know, national ID systems or mm -hmm. use of um, AI voice, generative AI and so on, that whatever is becomes a value add, they have a stake in it, is an imperative, it's a moral, political, social, everything imperative. Can you explain to our listeners, um, Nanji, why it's possibly problematic that, say, if you take a country like Zimbabwe, which is um, paying a company called Cloudwalk to provide facial recognition technology, but as part of that deal, the company Cloudwalk is able to gather the data and to be able to make better products because they don't have enough information about the particular demographics of Africa. Why is that a problem if ultimately it, it results in better products then being sold back to the continent? Why would that be seen as a problem? At a bare minimum, using just market you know, market terminology, is that the benefits are not going to be are not going to be accumulated evenly. The people of Zimbabwe are not necessarily going to benefit for having contributed and for having basically been the data set that helps diversify. And again, remember, our states are not necessarily working in our interest. So it's, it would be a hard sell to say that the Zimbabwean government has been doing this yeah, yeah, in exactly. the interests of Zimbabwean yeah, yeah, sure. citizens, right? So yes, we're, we're facial recognition <laughs> technology, yes, in exactly. Zimbabwe so as elections approach. Us. Right. So it ties us back to, um, you know, post-colonialism and what have been the tools that get us there. Technology has not, um, I'm sorry to say, democratized how the world has been yeah. moving. Yeah. If anything, it is entrenching exactly what is there. And in fact, it creates unholy marriages now, the risk of unholy marriages between states like these that are not representative of people, states that are captured, yeah. democratic or otherwise, yeah. and companies, multinationals that are completely unaccountable. And that brings us on to something else, which is actually is also the weaponizing of new technology. You know, obviously, we remember Cambridge Analytica and the, its involvement in the Kenyan elections. But we've also seen recent examples of reported hacking, using access to technology to find out whether or not, say, the Kenyan government is going to pay its debt. Espionage, <laughs> you know, yeah, cyber espionage. <laughs> so cyber espionage, um, right. the fact that all these tech, tech largely um, is sourced outside of the continent, surely tech is also a great threat to Africa's emerging and and uh, and new democracies and sometimes very fragile democracies. That's a complicated one for, for interesting mm. reasons. I think the, in the Reuters article that was um, highlighting yes. the case, the recent case in Kenya, it is alleged that, uh, you know, a senior official who didn't go on record, right, said, mm. but, you know, this happens all the time, even the Western capitals try to hack us, right? <laughs> so it was yes. a very nonchalant response to the fact that, yes, we get into this thing knowing we're going to be hacked anyway. Then I remember that, you know, most these are the same governments where if you're trying to get a hold of an official, you're probably using Gmail and Hotmail, right? And so yes. official government business is being conducted through these channels. So there's a very nonchalant approach to how cybersecurity is considered, um, especially in our public public spheres, that in its own way could be obfuscating and an interesting strategy where um, we may not find all these secrets or these, these things that others have put in the cloud um, easily. I think the joke we've had um, as a response as Kenyans to this is they found nothing because everything that needs to be is black and pen and paper. So in yeah. a sense, the more cybersecure approach there is <laughs> We haven't digitized enough yes. for anything valuable to be found through cyber espionage um, uh, aspects. That said, we have seen um, a few 
uh, African countries try to take on um, cyber offensive uh, capabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them, a few are also aligning the cybersecurity strategies to the military strategies or, you know, the cybersecurity agencies will be housed within the military, um, which just shows that, yes, there are different ways and the varied ways different actors are thinking about this. But in the day-to-day that government business is running on the cloud in Africa, most often than not, they're going to find a lot of noise before they find a signal, in my view. I'm not saying it's right. <laughs> I'm just saying it's just the that reality. That's just how things, that's the reality, right? Yeah. <laughs> it might mm. be an expensive, expensive undertaking to find, you know, somebody's private collection of pictures rather than yes. state secrets on how they're planning to pay the yeah, debt to true. China or anyone else. Mm. <laughs> but, but when yeah. you talk about threat to democracy, we have to toss in the grenade and something that everyone's talking about at the moment is, is obviously AI technology and things like avatars and chat GBT um, mm. and, and the threat on fragile democracies or, or non-democracies across Africa as well. I mean, there have been some chilling videos circulating at scale showing avatars who look like humans supporting despotic regimes and they're really really realistic and they're actually if no one's seen them I really would encourage you to go online because Mm. they are look very very genuine and they're they're, uh, supporting a a particular cause and Tara and I had a chat about this before the podcast and Tara quite rightly said what's the difference between this and someone having an avatar of themselves attending lots of different election rallies because it saves time and it saves fuel and and etc. I guess the reality here is that you don't necessarily know that these are fake. You don't necessarily know that these are being manipulated. And I guess Mm. when we don't have the checks and balances in this part of the world, um, you know, those types of tools can be used uh, to great effect and they can be spread. And this is the thing, they can be spread at scale. This is where we venture off completely from the technological to the political. Mm. Um, for one, I don't think this is a preserve of fragile democracies or, or authoritarian regimes, whether it's in Africa or anywhere yeah. else in the world. Um, so it's not more or less, you know, urgent. And this is the per- this is the gripe I tend to have with um, you know, African punditry, it's almost like we're always placed on this pedestal of extra vulnerability when in reality <laughs> certain things are, we have a weird resilience over the years in knowing how to identify some of these things of, you know, in bits and pieces. But why I say we go beyond the realm of the technological, this is where the role of civic space comes in. Because for as long as any economy or any government or any regime, democratic, authoritarian, anything in between, does not have a civic space, there will not be that healthy space where people teach each other or learn from each other or engage one another to know what's real, what isn't. And I'll use an example of Kenya, which I would not at this point necessarily call a democracy, (laughs) um, but is one because it ticks the boxes, right? What we do have is our civic space defended through digital platforms. So the very spaces that are being used to diffuse this, um, you know, tool, use these tools to try and sow discord or, you know, misinformation, disinformation or whatever, are the very much the same spaces people are trying to correct that. So you find ordinary citizens have become experts in Google reverse search engine, uh, you mm-hmm. know, imagery, yes, for example, mm-hmm. or spotting that the fact that somebody is trying to stoke fear, this is a video from another country context, the same space is being used for exactly that purpose. You've got a wealth of knowledge on this. You sit on lots of panels. You write some incredibly interesting papers. And the world that keeps coming up is about establishing some rules of the road um, mm. for future technologies. If you were trying to explain this, you know, to my mum and what you do in those types of engagements and how you are able to make a difference, can you just give us a little bit of an insight there? Sure. I, and, you know, we you tend to see these terms, right? Cooperation, inclusion, and all of that. Yeah, the usual stuff. I'd put it this way. 
uh, the f- most urgent thing I think we have as a as a people on this continent is intergenerational dialogue. And this is why I keep saying this comes back to how we refresh and re-energize and protect our civic spaces, whether it's, you know, big tech partnering with your government without your input, or whether it's, you know, your election being rigged or anything in between. Um, those daily practices are what will help us you know, form a new civics, a new political body politic that really um, puts up a formidable resistance. So this is where I think about, like, you know, principles of digital cooperation, inclusion, um, access, sustainability. That's exactly where we're going to foster them in the, uh, the minds of everyday people. It means even us as scholars or researchers or innovators and others have to understand and see, you know, we really need to go back to Ubuntu, not just as something we put on tattoos and nice t-shirts, <laughs> but really embody it and reclaim it because we are, because I am, because you are. So who are you? I must see you for what you are first before using tropes of age, gender, and everything else. So there's some work we have that doesn't even need the fancy jargon for the fancy jargon to be a, catch, a, a placeholder name for things that actually are diverse because uh, fundamentally we are diverse people. That's fascinating. Wow. Yes, wow. <laughs> it really is. Perfectly put. Got your work cut out for the next sort of half decade. So um, you're going to be busy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we'll try my, through my, I'll try my best. I'm just trying to, you know, through conversations like these, get a lot more people. One, realising that, in, in, by the way, um, I should plug this, Everybody can tech is my thing. Anybody can tech so long as you're affected by it, as long as you have a view of what's happening, the impact in your society, in your community, anybody can tech. The tech policy conversation is not just for the techies. Yeah, true. So we've got a new verb, to tech. I tech, you tech, we to tech. tech, we all tech. Air we tech. tech. Ubuntech. Yes. Ubuntech. There we go. I love it. Ubuntech. Oh, is that the tattoo? <laughs> I'm going to get that one now. Just TM. I might join you. I love it. <laughs> That's wonderful, Nigeria. That was fantastic. I'm glad to have had this conversation with you both today. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. If you're interested, Ark publishes in-depth frisk briefings on 22 countries around the continent. You can subscribe to these at info at africarisksconsulting.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share our podcast on social media and amongst friends. Our sound engineer was Ludwig Bauer and this podcast is a Karen Allen International production. Bye for now.